What is up, barbarians? It is Emmett, your nuclear barbarian, here with another weekly installment of the podcast. I hope you're doing well. Today's an exciting one. I have uh, a new guest and a good friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, over at the Decouple Podcast. What is up, Chris? Oh, Emmett, lots. We're going to get into it, I'm sure. But it's a lot of fun being invited on your show. I've uh, listened to the first God, we have three episodes now. Yeah, we're yeah. Ferris at the time of recording this. Yeah, Isaac Oren Bryce. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, man. I'm I'm loving your content, and uh, I'm just really excited about this this ecosystem that's forming. And and you know, I'm learning a lot from your podcast already. It's only been three episodes in, like I said, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a journey, man. I'm looking forward to seeing where this all goes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, uh, listeners who don't know, I've been on Chris's podcast. I think two or three times now. I think it's three. Three. Yeah, the trifecta. I'm a big I'm a big fan, and so that's why I wanted to have him on because he's been doing some interesting stuff over there and in Canada in the nuclear scene. So, before we get into that, Chris, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you even ended up in this space because i feel like you and i both came from relatively far afield from the nuclear space and have now become champions so oftentimes that can be a pretty strange and compelling story so how did this happen how did you get here man yeah i mean if if my like 29 year old self let's go back a decade could sort of see what my 39 year old self is doing right now they would shake their head they might be appalled they might want to come slap me in the face right i'm definitely a creature of the lens funny i was just giving a talk a kind of a keynote at a, at a labor conference that we'll get into soon but i was trying to kind of establish and tell the story in, in a way that was hopefully compelling to, to that audience but you know some of the things i've been involved with i guess more recently in that last decade you know i, I co-founded a migrant worker health for seasonal agricultural workers being exploited up here in canada almost in sort of indentured servitude type environment, although they're not even allowed to stay in Canada, even if they wanted to. So I guess it's a bit different than that sort of typical European indentured servitude model where you could kind of earn your citizenship eventually. So yeah, started a medical clinic for for those folks. I, I've been a staff physician at the Canadian Center for Victims of Torture. So that's been you know, very, very interesting, basically working on medical reports, uh, documenting injuries um, sustained under torture and supporting refugee applicants through that process here. And more, most recently, I've been uh, at the forefront in solidarity with nurses in my local province and really across Canada more broadly, who have been the victims of 10 years of wage suppression and who are leaving their profession in droves and really threaten it threatens that phenomenon threatens really the future of, of health care here in my country. So those are like a few, a few sort of windows into sort of my life in advocacy or activism or whatever you want. And so, yeah, how the hell did that lead into to nuclear? And I guess it has to do with, and I've talked about this a few times on my podcast, but in emergency medicine, the sort of core philosophy is triage. So it's identifying the most serious situation, the most serious illness in the department, who's the sickest. And it's about mobilizing resources in an intelligent way, in a utilitarian way to sort of save the most lives with, you know, by mobilizing the the meager resources you may have available. You could think about the scenario of a mass shooting, for instance, that becomes very important. And so I'm always asking myself when I think about the world, you know, what are the most fundamental and important issues and how can I use my skill set to contribute to those issues? And so 
three or four years ago, around the time of the birth of my son, I was thinking a lot about climate change was probably the preeminent motivation. And yeah, that led me to sort of deep dive the topic to become a doomer for some time, a catastrophist. Now, how long, uh, how long did the catastrophist spell last? Oh shit. It was a couple of years. I was not fun at parties, man. I was just constantly, you know, with the permafrost. <laughs> Totally, totally. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it's still stuff that is very pertinent and concerns me. I'm not trying to belittle it, and it still motivates me to a huge degree. I mean, there's other concerns that I've learned about through through the research I've done and the, the podcast I've done that are also kind of added on onto that. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the key questions of our time, climate is huge, and by extension, energy is huge, and so understanding the the energy system, getting a good solid grounding in that analysis and that seemed really pertinent in, in a sense. And it was probably Mark Linus, who was a very compelling figure to me, someone who was an anti-GMO campaigner, big in Greenpeace in the UK, who wrote a book on, on climate and was celebrated for it. But then the scientists who he'd sort of the new friends or the new sort of tribe he'd he'd met said, Hey man, you really have to reevaluate your opinions on on genetic engineering because you know you're always talking about the scientific consensus, but you're completely ignoring it on that topic. And that led him in a you know real soul searching and that led him into nuclear energy as well. So he was an inspiring figure because for those of us on the left or with roots in the left or who are post-left or whatever we want to call it, that's a, that's a big question to wrestle with. Nuclear energy can get you booted from the tribe. And I mean, I'm so glad to have been booted from those tribes, you know, in retrospect, but it really is. It really is. Yeah. And then this, this kind of new community that I've met through the podcast and through the activism is, is yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I get to speak to some really incredibly creative uh, and intelligent thinkers. So it's, it's been a real blessing. Yeah. So Mark Linus is sort of this gateway for you. And then what starts to happen after you find him, start to become persuaded on this? Like, walk me through what it was like for you to change your mind sure. and to not be a part of that tribe anymore. Because I think that's a, we don't hear about that part of it a lot, but mm -hmm. that's an important part of the journey. And I think something we have to pay attention to if we want to convince people and change their minds. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, so my, my ex-wife, you know, became very tired of my doomerism and said, you know, fucking shut up and do something about it. And what she had in mind being slightly crunchy granola was, you know, fucking sort the compost better and take out the recycling, right? And buy organic food. And yeah, I kind of went in a different direction there, more in an eco-modernist direction. But yeah, I mean, in terms of changing my mind, I think like my, I was talking with a friend, uh, Mirto Tripathi, and she was saying, listen, like activism in like, the 90s and early 2000s, it was all about human rights, right? It was all about, it was very centered in humanism. And contemporary youth activism is very centered in, in kind of an anti-human narrative. And so I, I was never a anti-nuclear activist. I certainly was probably anti-nuclear in terms of my core beliefs. And that's centered in questions really of being kind of anti-technology, that we needed a big sort of culture shock or political change, not, you know, the, the solutions were not technological. I remember, ironically, Ontario, where I'm from, is 61% uh, nuclear powered. We have three huge generating stations that do that. One of them is very close to where I live in Toronto. And driving on the highway past the city of Pickering, where the plant is located, I used to step on the pedal a little harder or hold my breath, which is just completely hilarious. Like that's as amazing. I've learned I love more, that. That's so know, good. as I've learned more about particulate air pollution, and it's just you know our clean air is due to the fact that our nuclear plants provided the energy to phase out coal. 
starting several reactors did that for us. So it's it's a huge, huge kind of irony. So you were sort of more into the like, as as the guys over at Space Commune like to joke, return to monkey. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've had a very, I'm at, like, I've had a very strange life. In my teens, I was a neo-Luddite. I was a self-described neo-Luddite. You know, you know, I come from, uh, you know, my, my mom's side of the family came over from Ukraine. They left 1937, like hella good timing. <laughs> And, you know, we're peasants, right? And then worked their asses off. And because of the opportunities available here, you know, became professionals by the time my generation came along. So like, I, I come from a, a comfortable background, right? And I think as you sort of talked about, you know, environmentalism is very much this kind of elite concern. I, I was sort of, yeah, convinced that social hierarchy was was the problem and that technology is what enabled that. And, you know, romanticized this idea of kind of hunter-gatherer society, pre-modern society, like that's kind of what we needed to go back to. And I took that to an extreme, man. Like I, I became a Full real paleo. Survivor. Well, not like paleo diet, but I became a survivalist. Right. And I, I grew up in the country. So there was a lot of woods around available to me. And I learned how to, you know, trap and, and how to, you know, identify wild foods, how to make shelters. I, I can literally make fire with sticks. It's called Bodril fire. And I was like, <laughs> that's awesome. this comes from a day and a time when we, you know, technology was so common that everybody could do this, right? Like that's incredible. I, I ended up because my family wasn't a hunting family and I wanted to learn about, about that as part of my sort of Neoletta journey. I, you know, hopped on a, on a Greyhound bus, traveled for like 72 hours straight. I'm six foot nine, right? I was crumpled into this <laughs> tiny bus and I ended up like, I thought I was going to find like, you know, I guess my Carlos Castaneda figure, or, you know, live that life and find some native person that would like teach me how to hunt and trap and become one with the land. I ended up getting hired by a big game outfitter, which was pretty bizarre, but that's how I learned how to, how to hunt. And I actually ended up being taught how to moose hunt in particular by uh, my good friend, Jerry Bike, a uh, guy from the Nacho Nagdan nation up there, but under like really different circumstances and less romantic circumstances than I'd anticipated. But nonetheless, I mean, that gives you a bit of a sense of the one extreme that I've, I've lived. Um, and then, you know, through going to medical school and working in, in hospitals, right. These, you know, you've called nuclear plants, industrial cathedrals. I mean, hospitals are these like cathedrals of social solidarity, especially in Canada where, you know, it's a public publicly funded system and you can have, you know, it's just, it's just incredible. That kind of a quality of care that is the result of that. And anyway, I mean, a hospital is this large complex institution, lots and lots of people working together, a very risky environment, you know, sick people, tons of opportunities for error to occur. I think that's kind of what made me much more comfortable with nuclear and, and large, complex, centralized things was like just seeing the inherent benefit of these institutions and starting to get a much more positive take on what humans were capable of. And yeah, I mean, along the way as well, I, I, I after I finished school, I, I bought a, uh, a small farm. Well, I took out a huge loan, which are available to, to doctor types and uh, set up a bit of an intentional community there on the border. No way. Of, yeah. On the border of a native reservation, the largest native reservation in the country, because yeah, I mean, it's an area of interest to me, Aboriginal health. And also this was where the, this was a huge agricultural area where they import a lot of Mexican and Jamaican migrant labor. And so there's a lot of sort of like justice issues to kind of work on in the area, but yeah. And, and I've sort of got into my sort of nuclear origin story, but I ended up kind of moving on from that back to the city and, and, kind of here we are, I guess. I'll stop there because I, I could run on for a while and I don't want to be self-indulgent in this. No, no, no. I mean, that's that's really fascinating, right? So, I mean, that is quite the shift yeah. um, in perspective as you move through that. 
And so by the time you're willing to be convinced by the benefits of nuclear, you become a podcaster. Right. Like how yeah. did the, how did you conceive the idea for decouple and like what did you want when you started and what is it now what have you learned you know just tell me about that that journey now. Yeah, I mean for sure so I mean I think a really important part of this was probably two or three years of pretty extensive reading. And you know when you have a a baby and you're out for long walks pushing the stroller trying to keep the little one asleep you know you can you can hold a book or you can hold your Kindle and I mean at least I could so I ended up reading a lot and I'm really glad for that phase because you know there's this saying no investigation no right to speech or to speak I should say and that's pretty draconian but on the same sense there's a lot I mean it's so easy to start a podcast these days you know decouple is in the um top it's rated in the top 5% of podcasts but I mean that's really a testament to just how fucking easy it is to start a podcast crank out a few episodes and mm-hmm. quit right Well that's um, yeah because most of the people most people don't get beyond the first like 3 months or 3 weeks if yeah, they're lucky yeah, and so if yeah. you can hang out there for like a year then you're like it's in the top, top 5% yeah. totally totally yeah. anyway um so lots of kind of investigation thinking and I mean yeah this encouragement to do something about it I, that was that was really good advice. I went in a different direction, obviously. I did college radio back in university, and it always was astounding to me that I could read a book, be super inspired, and find a way. We didn't have Twitter back then. It was a little more complicated, but find a way to contact the author and have like a half hour, hour long conversation and pick their brain. You know, part of my journey into medicine, I think, you know, any kind of youth who's looking at their future career, like any career can look kind of shitty, especially when you look at how it's practiced in the status, status quo sort of performance. And, you know, I was inspired by a physician in California who in the eighties was working a lot in, in a rural area with migrant workers, actually. And they they were fleeing the civil wars, you know, the US backed civil wars in uh, Guatemala and, and El mm-hmm. Salvador. And he ended up becoming very compelled by those stories and went and worked. Essentially, he was a, he was a Quaker and a, and a pacifist, but he, he went to work behind guerrilla lines in El Salvador. Crazy story. He's done wow. for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, and so being able to call this guy and talk to him and, and be inspired and like that, those are the kind of things that, that led me into medicine, not like, oh, I want to drive a nice car and, and whatnot. Um, so that echoed with me. And I'd always wanted to get back into, into radio journalism as a result. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, the lockdowns happened. I recently divorced and I had a bit of time on my hands as a result of, you know, the social world just collapsing around me. And uh, yeah, so I, God, I'd been talking about it for a while. The first episode is a friend of mine who's an amazing filmmaker, Jesse Freeston. And, you know, in terms of finally getting up the gumption to do it, we just had a Zoom call and he's like, tell me what you want to do. And it turned into a a pretty exciting little thing. And, you know, the rest is history. I've been really lucky getting guests. And yeah, I mean, I'm 94 episodes in now. Wow. I've learned so much. And, and, you know, early on people were like, yo, you're, you're keeping up quite a pace there. You might want to slow down. You might run out of things to talk about, but I mean, this area is, is fascinating. And in some sense, I kind of feel like not an imposter, but you know, who am I, you know, but I get to be, I think at the forefront of something really, really exciting that's going on in terms of, you know, this, this whole historic moment we're in. I mean, we're living in this crazy energy crisis right now. And and the benefits of having spent years researching that and talking with world experts is hugely informative. I'm heading to uh, COP26 next week, this climate conference uh, that's happening in the midst of this energy crisis. And the framing of that is so interesting. And I'm just, I feel so blessed um, by the insights that my guests have given me to understand this historic moment. I, I guess like, 
a key motivation for me is just like seeking out the truth, uncovering it, chasing it to, you know, to its lair to get a little bit poetic there. And the podcast is fundamentally a journey for that. And that's what kind of scratches the itch. I like fighting for the underdog. And I think what I'm fighting for is, is really important for, for people, for working people, for, for nature, for the whole gambit. So it, it does align with all, all of this kind of trajectory of my life. I'm, I'm suspicious of people that sort of switch allegiances on a dime. And so I understand why people might be like, what the fuck? You were like a neo-Luddite. Now you're like this techno-optimist. But you know, it took a lot of years, a lot of retrospection. I think there's also a huge benefit to being able to change your mind in the in the face of of new evidence and new life experiences. So yeah. I mean, to me, it's sort of like, you know, I've had friends be like, How did you end up here? You know, talking yeah. about energy it seems surprising or whatever i remember somebody was just like you know why does so and so person we mutually know this person has nothing to do with energy space the person who was talking to me why does this person like talk about it when they don't have any credentials and i was like well because like the people who do have credential credentials are all bought and paid for and lie all the time without consequences (laughs) you know so we need like non-experts to step in and speak on behalf of the truth and hold these people accountable. And I think what I've learned from watching Decouple go through is that there's huge appetite for clarity on these issues from sources off the beaten path. Um, I mean, I'm sure for you, it's been transformative to get to hear all of these people. Like, what have you learned over the course of the podcast or how has the podcast changed the way you've thought about these issues before you started it? Well, I mean, first off, I think that's a really interesting question around like, you know, what, what expertise, what right to speak do you have on this, these topics of energy? And I think that's where this kind of journalistic bent comes in. You know, journalists are almost always outsiders to the thing that they're covering or or studying. And I mean, just your, your interview with Robert Bryce, I mean, what an expert he's transformed himself into over the years of, you know, covering Enron and moving, writing several books. And I mean, I have ambitions to, to do that eventually to write books, but, and your comment as well on, on, you know, expertise, I think we have to have a lot of respect for expertise. We need to be aware of outlier experts as well. I think that's really, really important. You'll see in the anti-genetic engineering, anti-vax, anti-nuclear worlds, there'll be some sort of celebrity experts that are, you know, almost become figures of worship for these, these communities. And they're crazy outliers. It's wild, but also, you know, within, Within energy, there's, you know, I was just, I was talking to a guy, a union rep in the International Brotherhood of Electric Workers. And, you know, he just, he had such a on the ground experience instead of insights on energy, on nuclear, on wind and solar, for instance, that's just like utterly lacking amongst this like academic energy groups. And I mean, it's a bit reminiscent of the way that the left has, you know, become completely out of touch with the workplace, with workers, engineers, people who can have a, blue collar analysis and a feel for how things work. I'm wandering a little off off topic there, but I thought that was important to uh, to mention. Your question was what I've learned in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and how it's, if it's changed the way you've looked at certain things and how it's changed that. Oh god, man. I mean, yeah, 100% it's 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 been a journey. I think it's been interesting like the kind of editorial choices cuz fundamentally you decide kind of who you're going to have on 
what positions you're going to take. And I think it's really important to to sort of maintain that beginner's mind. And there's been moments in the podcast journey where I've become, you know, really, really certain of things and then step back and been like, yo, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor who's gotten interested in this in the last you know year. Maybe, maybe kind of hold your horses a little bit. So there's, there's great kind of moments for that. But yeah, I mean, I think, and I think I'm kind of answering, I'm, I'm probably not answering your question directly, but in, in regards to kind of choosing an, an editorial line, it's been very interesting for me doing the thing that's not easy, which is it's within, within, you know, climate concern circles or within, you know, the pro-nuclear community, there's, I think a huge temptation to what's, I, th- I heard it, heard someone say this in a tweet recently to like kiss the ring of renewables in order to advocate for nuclear. Yeah. I believe that um, was our friend, um, our friend. Is, still, was it? I mean, it may, may be several people who have yeah. you know, had parallel thoughts on this, but yeah. And it's, it's been an interesting editorial choice to, to explore that issue to, you know, some people like don't touch renewables, don't be critical. It's going to lose you friends. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you can attract more, um, Fuck, what is it again? You can attract more flies with- uh, uh, More with, bees with honey than with vinegar. Yeah. Than with vinegar, right? But in, in investigating that side and in, in, in delving into it, you know, it's led me beyond just some questions of well, vital questions of, of intermittency and resource use, but also into these questions of, of labor and just transition, which I think are, are really essential. So that's, that's been a thing. Like if I limited my editorial line and sort of done the safe thing, I would have robbed myself of a whole area of analysis. And I think a contribution that I've really been able to make in terms of, you know, centering this idea on the grid as a commons, for instance, and, and other issues of labor, which I think we'll get into a little later. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like the, the idea or I like the, the part of it that, you know, limiting your editorial line to the safe way, and especially the safe way to get money is to be very like kid gloves on for renewables, right? You know, very few people have the willingness to do that because it does really get you forced out. You know, you have to either already be an outsider or somebody who's willing to become an outsider to take that position if you're in the climate space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, I mean, I think what was funny to me is that like everybody was like, Macron is saying he's going to build like six SMRs. And then like (laughs) Marine Le Pen of the National Front was like, no, that sucks. I want to do a national EPR build out. And if I'm elected, I will rip out every single wind turbine in France. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, she gets to say that because she's outside of the beaten path for a lot of that discourse. But I think it, to me, it feels like an emperor has no clothes moment. When it's, it's, it's absolutely essential. I mean, there's such a hegemony in the discourse. It's been the most brilliant, one of the most brilliant market campaigns of all time. Edward Bernays would be would be impressed, shall we say, at the ways in which this kind of seamless, you know, marketing strategy has has occurred, you know, with not just the companies themselves, but with the large environmental organizations really transforming themselves into salespeople for renewables. I mean, you look at the goals of Greenpeace, Sierra Club, NRDC, and and goal number one or number two, either explicitly or implicitly, is to, you know, build fuck tons of, of renewables. And no, it's well, just, that's what decarbonization means to them. Right. And it's just it so bizarre. Mean I mean, it used to be about, you know, cons- like, you know, the, the old school Sierra club stuff where well, there's some, it was problematic degrees, but it was like conserve, you know, these beautiful areas of, of wilderness for posterity or, you know, it was Greenpeace saving the whales. And I mean, they want to save the whales and now they want to plug, you know, 30,000 offshore wind turbines along the migration path of the endangered right whale down the East coast of, of the Atlantic. It's, it's, and it's they didn't wild. even save the whales. 
It's yeah. just that it became like economically untenable to pursue the whale thing like we were. And they yeah. happened to show up right when the party was ending. So they got to plant their, plant their flag in it. Basically, basically. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not like this kind of all of the aboveism or why not bothism. Again, that sort of comes back to my ideas around triage where, you know, I do think there is an urgency around climate and I am alarmed, you know, and two to three degree increase um, by 2100 has major, major implications. And it's so multifactorial, right? Like you can be dismissive of like, you know, a single outcome, but when it's uh, a lot of simultaneous, simultaneous factors coming together at once, that creates a lot of stress. And the way that I sort of communicate that climate concern is is with a metaphor of, you know, a boat that's, you know, trying to sail into a brighter future. And, you know, with every climate impact, it's kind of like throwing an anchor over the, the back of the ship. And there's a lot of drag that starts to occur. And that can really, I think, impact human progress in dangerous ways. And so, I mean, that that's kind of why I maintain a level of concern and urgency, but that's precisely why I'm so opposed to, to renewables. I mean, you know, nuclear is often said as, well, this is a false solution. I mean, renewables are, are absolutely a false solution to this, this problem on a whole number of of rays but i mean as we're seeing with this energy crisis right now you know where we've had this wind drought you know people don't think about extreme people when people think extreme weather they think about hurricanes and other catastrophes but i mean this wind drought is an unusual climate event and it's knocked back wind production in the in in the eu by something like 20 percent, and that's had major implications and you know, Roger Pilkey's iron law of, of a climate or Robert Bryce's iron law of electricity. I mean, people will do whatever it takes to keep the lights on and to keep their kids warm. Mm-hmm. And it's just shown what a farce this, this renewables experiment is because, you know, we're, we're not going to put ourselves at the mercy of, of the weather gods. I mean, axiomatically, it just doesn't make sense because the thing that they say, and I think you'd agree with, is that if climate change continues to gain ahead of steam, we're going to see more extreme weather events, mm-hmm. right? And then they're like, so we should make our electricity system dependent on Absolutely. increasingly yeah. extreme weather. Yeah. And it's like, that does, <laughs> uh, why would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> if you believe yeah. A, why would you go to B? Right. Yeah. Like that, those don't really fall. No, and I mean, and, and so much of, you know, like there's no longer any illusions that adaptation is an absolute key goal, right? At the, the environmental left has been, oh no, 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 it's, it's all mitigation. It's all reducing carbon emissions. Like adaptation is just an excuse to put more carbon into the atmosphere. I mean, at this point we're locked into two or three degrees. Like any, anyone realistic will tell you that there's no net zero in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years you know, energy transitions are slow, even mm-hmm. when they're thermodynamically viable, you know, when you're moving to, you know, more dense energy sources, more compact, more usable energy sources, it takes a long time. I think, I think it was Bryce that I was just uh, uh, looking, no, it was Vatslav Smil I was looking at recently, like something like, you know, a hundred years to move to 50% coal from biomass in, in the EU or sorry, in, in, uh, in Britain, you know, and, and similar amounts of time, maybe 70 years to, to get to sort of 50% of use from, from petroleum. And I mean, gas has taken a long time for, for reasons that Mark Nelson could explain better, but energy transitions take a long ass time. Um, we're locked in to, you know, despite what the modelers say, we're locked in, I think, to a significant amount of climate change and adaptation is an imperative and, and reliable electricity is the kind of lifeblood of civilization, of the mm-hmm. life support structures of modern civilization, such as healthcare. I mean, fuck, it's important. The power lines to my hospital got hit by a road crew doing some excavation. And we were on diesel backup. And that was that was hairy, man. I mean, that that generator fails or the fuel, the diesel fuel isn't delivered on time. 
We were shutting down areas of the hospital, turning off power to certain spots that were not as important. This was this was hairy, right? But I mean, beyond that, you know, sewage treatment, water, water. I mean, just the, the water in your taps is it's electric motors that power that, right? It's it's a Malthusian disaster if if the grid goes down. Like, and and we're used to these. I'm not sure if it was Meredith Angwin who said this, but like the blackouts we're talking about, like Texas or the blackouts of the future, which are generation blackouts, like lack of generation, the wind fucks mm-hmm. off or, or the sun doesn't shine or both don't happen for a week at a time. These are not your grandmother's blackouts where a tree falls on a line and the linemen come yeah. out and get power it's back totally to different neighborhood. It's you totally know? different. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. Like that's a black starting the grid problem. Yeah. And, and people die, right? People die. Carbon monoxide poisoning was was rife in Texas. People just right because they'll death. do whatever they can to stay warm and to keep the lights on. And and, and I mean, I, how much was it? I, I don't want to misquote this, but it was either twenty or two hundred billion dollars of economic damage. Oh, tons, um, yeah, in Texas, right? I mean, and you think about what could be done with two hundred billion dollars. Um, you know, to to and and with with nuclear, you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get you know reliable electricity you get mm-hmm. you get all, all that that implies and you're decoupled from the carbon issue and from air pollution it's it's an incredible incredibly elegant solution but people will do anything to avoid a nuclear future including you know this Rube Goldberg machine of intermittent energy sources balanced with batteries and transmission and just these fantastical ideas that are completely not scalable to avoid that. And it's it's puzzling. And I think we're starting to shift that by our enthusiasm, which again, people may find as being very, very strange, but I think I think we're onto something. And I think there's a cultural shift that's that's beginning. And there's nothing like an energy crisis to, to bring I, back I, nuclear. I was about to say there, energy politics is coming back into the fold, whether people like it or not. I've um, so subscribers who read the newsletter know that I've been calling this winter what we're coming into the black cascade mm-hmm. because we will see the energy issues cascade over into the supply chain vis- issues and then vice versa. Right? right. And so that's going to lead to some seriously gnarly problems from everything to agriculture to retail to you know keeping the digital world we've built alive and stuff energy like that is the, energy is the secret ingredient in everything everything uh, yeah as isaac says yeah. yeah so for sure and, and just just a couple things there i mean the consequences of this energy crisis will be felt differently throughout the world i mean germany is a rich country they'll they'll get their fuel they'll, yeah, they'll but find india stuff or lebanon india, exactly it's it's shocking and it's disgusting and it's brutal and and mm-hmm. another key point i think is you know, when when energy is cheap, when fossil fuels are flowing easily, when there's a glut of natural gas, that's when renewables do very well when they're rewarded. You know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're in an energy crisis. Fossil fuels are scarce, expensive. People start talking about nuclear again. And fundamentally, like a nuclear renaissance is not going to happen because you and me are great advocates and we, you know, convince some erstwhile environmentalists to drop their objections. It's going to happen for very pragmatic reasons. And we're seeing a pragmatic reason right now. I think people, listeners should understand that there are billions of dollars propping up a green economy that is eroding our infrastructural security. 100%. And that's going to be a really gnarly, really weird political fight. An infrastructure that is vital again for climate adaptation. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's not just that the roads are getting incrementally shittier. 
you know, it's that people are dying in their homes of monoxide poisoning in the Midwest because XL doesn't have enough coal to get us through the winter and the renewables aren't delivering at the moment we need all the energy we can get. So that's what it looks like. And there are obviously a lot of labor concerns with that. So I wanted to talk to you about some of what you're doing with nuclear and labor in Canada, because I find it really exciting. And I know that you just gave a rousing speech recently. So I was wondering if you could tell us that story and talk about what you're doing. Sure. I mean, so uh, I've spent the two years, I founded an organization called Canadians for Nuclear Energy, really as an attempt to balance the, the spectrum or become like I, we cop a lot of our tactics and strategy are carbon lifted from what the Sierra Club is doing or Greenpeace is doing, but obviously with re- really different messaging. So we've used and employed a lot of similar tactics and strategies. I think, you know, in, in this activity, it's really important to identify like a block or a base, right? I mean, in electoral politics, you talk about sort of getting an electoral block together. Nuclear doesn't have a lot of friends, but a natural place to start looking for those friends, particularly in Canada, is labor. So 76,000 people working in this sector, and they're almost all unionized. Um, And they're the black sheep of the larger labor movement because the labor movement has really been infected by the green left. You know, I was at a, it was, it was a conference put on by the Ontario Federation of Labor, which is an umbrella for really all the unions. And it was, you know, the, the, the speakers were folks like Seth Klein, who I've actually had on the pot, you know, who is a interesting guy, you know, imagines a replay of World War II and our mobilization in order to build lots of wind turbines and solar panels, you know, here in country, which, you know, is not going to happen. Andre, Andreas Malm has written something similar that is about yeah. war communism from yeah. the early Soviet days. Um, rationing, just, baby. He loves rationing. Like, it's, just like, yeah. it's just baby shit. It's just baby shit. Yeah. And, 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 and to imagine that that wouldn't require, like, what do you think fueled Canada's wartime production, which was impressive, right? Like we built, we had the yeah, third, so it was fourth, largest so it was air force in the world. Incredible. Right. But what fueled that? A fuck ton of fossil fuels. Oh yeah. You think you're going to build all, all the wind turbines with winter? No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. No, no, no. free lunch thing. Anyway, so that really drew me to thinking a lot about labor and the way in which, you know, the, the environmental activists talk a lot about a just transition for fossil fuel workers, you know? And, and they imagine they can kind of legislate, you know, high wages and full-time work for intermittent energy and the intermittent jobs that are provided by, by wind and solar. I mean, you're putting up new solar panels every 20 or 30 years, you're commissioning and decommissioning wind turbines every, you know, but there's no parking lot outside of a wind farm or a solar farm, right? There's a small parking lot, maybe 30 spaces outside of a large natural gas plant. You know, our nuclear plants in Ontario, these are four to eight unit sites, thousands of parking spots. So that led me to really reach out to labor to, you know, in my tweets to really link them and, and a local campaign to save a nuclear plant. I've, I've, you know, who are the natural allies in that? Well, fuck. I mean, the 3000 people working at that nuclear plant are about their jobs pulled out from underneath them. Right. Um, and not to mention the 4,600 full-time equivalent jobs that are spinoffs from, from that nuclear plant. Plan. And so in, in appealing to labor, I started to, to be noticed, you know, call people, make relationships, get in on meetings. And that led to an invite to tour the world's largest operating nuclear facility, which is located right implausibly in Ontario, Canada, Bruce Power, which puts out about 6.4 uh, gigawatts 
of electricity. It's, it's My God. astounding. It's, it's the world's <laughs> largest. I mean, it's probably the world's largest generating site, never mind mm-hmm. nuclear. I mean, it's nuclear because you can do that because of energy density. And so I was invited by some of the nuclear unions to, to come and to give a talk and to tour this facility. And it was absolutely incredible. I mean, I mean, just going to this, this plant is in a more rural area. There's a couple small towns uh, around it, you know, where the nuclear workforce is from. And it's like time traveling, man. You know, these are thriving, prosperous towns full of, full of unionized workers who have great jobs and with a really active union movement. And there's a kind of, um, and I shouldn't say this has always been the case, but certainly at the present moment, there's a lot of like the, the relationship between management and workers is quite good because everybody's focused, for instance, on issues of occupational safety. I mean, if the, someone sprains their ankle at a nuclear plant, that's a nuclear accident, right? I mean, so there's, there's periods in which there's millions of hours worked without, an, without any injuries on site. And I mean, that literally could be a back sprain, like anything that requires medical attention. Right. The safety culture is intense. And for workers, that's a really good thing. I mean, we can talk mm-hmm. about that. There's some problems with that in terms of overregulation and whatnot. But for yeah, workers, we don't need uh, we don't need meltdown safe bike racks. But I mean, just just like being at this um, conference, going to the pancake lunch at the Carpenters Union Hall, and just the kind of genuine sort of like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce the next speaker. This is my sister, whoever, and, and not sort of having emerged from a you know a labor background or not like labor, just that culture not really existing. I'm like, oh, that's literally your sister, and like, no, 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 like the sister and brotherhood of labor. That was a really incredible experience. And yeah, I mean, I think I was able to give a pretty rousing speech. I have those bona fides of, you know, having founded a migrant agricultural worker clinic, you know, of, of my work. And I think I was able to sort of really onboard a lot of people that have been skeptical. I, I attended a, again, this labor confronts climate conference and just thinking that the the kind of intellectuals that they're speaking and trying to rally the troops had messages which were profoundly anti-labor that would result in thousands of people losing their jobs in shitty jobs of the future, you know, essentially being a, a solar panel installer in communities, like these healthy communities that I was seeing there around the nuclear plant falling apart. And then touring the actual facility, I mean, they're in the midst of um, Canada's largest infrastructure project, which is the refurbishment of our, of our Candus, um, which every 30 to 40 years needs some parts swapped in and out. And that's Canada's largest um, infrastructure project. There's days when there's 10,000 people going on and off site. It's wild. And then, you know, going into the facility itself, there's, there's two sides to it. So there's eight reactors total with two buildings with, with uh, four reactors and four uh, generators each. And I mean, the, the turbine hall is half a kilometer long, Whoa. right? For coming off this, this site is, is extraordinary. And, and you realize that you realize that what's required, you know, for our climate goals and our electrification goals is we need to build two more of these facilities, two more of the world's largest operating nuclear plants in the world. And, you know, it's, it's uh, a little disheartening because, you know, I think as, as I've investigated, as you've investigated on your podcast, you know, exhaust, why nothing feels possible anymore, you know, deregulation, I think is, is one of the big forces, but also, you know, neoliberalism has really impacted our ability to, to do big infrastructure projects. And so in a sense, there was a, a bit of melancholy, like looking at this incredible accomplishment and thinking, you know, is that, can we do that again? Right. And we certainly can't with the kind of culture that, that we're being fed in which to be honest, you know, the PMC of, or the, the kind of labor management uh, folks mm-hmm. are, are receiving from the folks that come and speak at their conferences. So, 
you know, I'm excited about hopefully being invited back and being able to offer a different perspective on, you know, which, which shares a, a climate concern for sure, but which, which is thinking mm-hmm. more broadly about what's, what's beneficial to labor. And, and this, again, this way where you can have the cake and eat it too. And that includes, you know, high quality jobs and, and good things for the labor movement. Right. I mean, to me, one of the things that is exciting is that they're so responsive, right? They're like, oh yeah, like this is the message I want to hear. The thing that I'm curious about is like, do you get a sense of like how they feel about the environmental movement and it's like staunch anti-nuclearism? Like I think in America, the effect on nuclear workers has been profoundly demoralizing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that true in Canada as well? Well, it's probably led those union or those workers to be like, fuck the environmental movement, fuck like climate change, whatever, right? Like just we're doing our job. We're, we're- or the, the, I think I think for them, it's sort of just like, yeah, I don't care, man, whatever. If they're going to close down the plant, they close down the plant. The IBEW, because it's in with the Democratic Party, will get some of us a front row seat to being solar panel installers. You know, and or, or think, they'll go to the UAE. They'll go to the UAE and become reactor operators. Over right. There. Or they'll go or, you know, th- there's always some deal with the decommissioning of like who will stay to decommission, right. like who's going right. to do that. And I'm not dunking on these people at all because the labor movement in America has been really ground down over the last few decades. It's been painful to see. And yeah. I, if, I mean, just putting myself in their shoes, it would suck if I knew that there were all these people who think they're saving the planet think i'm like this like monster for keeping the cleanest densest energy we have running yeah i mean it it was interesting you you do hear from nuclear labor this thing of well you know we're not here to bash renewables you know we need everything he's got to kiss the ring (laughs) <laughs> got to kiss the ring, right? Got to play it safe. And especially in like, this was nuclear unions inviting the Canadian Labour Congress, like the rest of the labour movement, which again, has typically not treated them very well at all, ignored their existence, not stood up for them. I mean, this this Pickering nuclear station, which employs 3000 people, there's not been a peep as far as I can tell from the labour movement or from the you know political class in general about losing this this huge industrial facility. No, had, I had, mean, the, like, the left was it didn't show up for the Indian point workers. The New York DSA was basically not our issue, not our problem. Anyway, we've got a public power campaign that slates nuclear as a fossil fuel. So we're going to go ahead and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a a big focus of my work is to, is to combat precisely what you're talking about, that demoralization. You know, a lot of our campaigns hinge on, on slogans like, you know, nuclear workers are clean air heroes or climate heroes, or, I mean, fuck, we're, I mean, this, the, one of the really impressive things, not only that we have the largest operating nuclear facility in the world, but that facility churns out medical isotopes, which enable modern healthcare. You know, anything made out of plastic that you need in healthcare, be it an IV cannula, an endotracheal tube, all the shit, the PPE, that all needs to get sterilized. And you can't put it in an autoclave and expose it to high temperatures. It'll fucking melt, right? So how do we sterilize all that? How do we enable sterility in our medical treatments? Well, it's medical isotopes. And Bruce Power, this this enormous power plant, provides cobalt-60, which is used to sterilize 40% of the world's single-use medical devices. Amazing. Enough to sterilize 20 billion pieces of PPE, right? So yeah, these people working at these plants, not only you know did they phase out coal, the the, the greatest greenhouse gas reduction me- measure in, in North America, you know, not only did they take smog days from 53 a year down to zero a year by by providing the power to eliminate coal they 
enable modern healthcare. I mean, so these people are heroic. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm called a hero for being a, a doctor on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. I mean, whatever, you know, I can't do shit if the lights are not working. Yeah. Right. If I don't have electricity and these people showed up, they, they were quite late in the line to get vaccines made available to them. I was advocating around that. So I just, I think, I think labor is a, is a, is a key area. Yes. They've been really bashed since the, since the seventies and eighties, but I I think they're a a key ally and and there's a kind of symbiosis there between nuclear advocates and labor. So, so I'm, it's, it's a huge focus of my work. Yeah. That's amazing. So, I mean, I'm excited to see what falls out of that, right? Like, I hope that we can get more of that in America. I hope Diablo Canyon will especially be a flashpoint for that. I feel like a lot of unions are going to come together for that. And I think there will be a deeper appreciation for labor after the logistics and energy crisis of this winter flare up and then come to a close. But while all of this is unfolding and while the Biden Biden administration's insane climate plan has basically been strangled in its crib, thank God, they are all meeting at COP. which you will be at. So tell me about COP, what you hope to do there, what you think about it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously I'll have a lot more to say once I return, you know, for some of the nuclear advocates going, it's their third or fourth COP. I I have, you know, very little idea of what I'm stepping into other than, you know, the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio is jetting out there, that they have, you know, a green zone, a blue zone, and what's being joked about a platinum zone for a kind of elite, you know, billionaires to come and express their concern. I mean, I think it's a total charade. I think even, you know, I, th- I think there's almost a, a broad consensus you know, ranging from those environmental groups. I think we all know that not much is going to come out of this. I think it's just going to be very interesting human theater to be there and, and document. You know, I have uh, a past that gets me into the NGO media area, maybe some chances to to harass a decision maker on the street for an interview. It's fun um, getting into trouble. <laughs> Right, right. It's going to be fun. I mean, we're we're talking about doing a nightly newscast called the uh, the Daily Cop Out. We'll be producing some great media there and and live streaming and releasing lots of episodes through the kind of decouple media platform. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting time for climate. You know, people are scrambling. Countries are scrambling across the world to secure fossil fuel uh, investments. And I mean, this energy crisis is really the product of. Uh, of the climate movement, there's this inherent tension there. There's been a divestment in terms of investments in in fossil fuels. At the same time, there's been a crushing of nuclear. And if you don't, if you're crushing all forms of reliable energy, surprise, and and then the wind dies off for you know half a year or full year, what are you left with? So this is really a, a great example of the climate movement shooting themselves in their feet. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether that percolates through. I'll see if I have a run in with with Greta. Yeah, I mean, I'll have a lot to say afterwards, and maybe I'll maybe I'll try and come back on to kind of share some reflections there. But certainly, we'll be producing a lot of media, um, yeah, and, and hoping to to shine a light on some of the contradictions at play. Right. So, I mean, that's sort of what's interesting to me about COP. Like I heard, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that the nuclear industry is like not basically not really allowed to participate in COP discussions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the renewables folks are, are welcome. The red carpet has been rolled out, but yeah, nuclear is the enfant terrible. Um, not welcome. I mean, there's a there's a whole group of nuclear advocates that will have a presence in the NGO sure. zone, you know, and that's important, but yeah. I think officially from from the sort of green zone, from the decision maker zone, not welcome. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know. 
I think the next five to 10 years are going to be very, very illuminating for the renewable space. I have a feeling that at some point in America, at least, and no doubt because it's America, this will redound throughout the world, that there's going to be some legislative rethinking about what exactly nonprofits are and what they do and how they engage with the political and policy space. Mm -hmm. And I think that that will have pretty direct consequences on the hope for renewables, which is basically propped up with hedge funds, NGOs, and crooked politicians. Mm -hmm. That's all it is, right? It's just conference bullshit and corruption. You know, I don't think that's going to last forever, especially if people are feeling incredibly threatened by these seemingly supra-political groups and they're struggling to keep their lights on. Well, and the shell game's already falling down. I mean, I was reading a piece earlier today that polysilicon prices are up about 300%. Yep. You know why? Because China's in a coal shortage right now and they can only run their factories two days a week so that the whole grid doesn't black out. <laughs> Thank right? you for reading my newsletter, Chris. Is that you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, happy to spread the good word. I mean, that what, what a wild story though, right? I mean, when, when mm-hmm. fossil fuels are not available, the whole sort of house of cards starts to fall down. And, you know, I'm looking forward to your future newsletters because I think um, you're really going to be at the forefront of uh, bringing accountability to and exposing some very important things. I mean, just your last episode of Robert Bryce, I, mm-hmm. I kind of clipped that and uh, this section where, you know, you talked about Mark Z. Jacobson's slap lawsuit, like that needs to get out there. Um, we need to be putting the pressure on St- on Stanford and, and you know, on the, the places that house these people and, and hold them to account. Uh, because they have a real outsized, outsized role that they, they do not merit by any, yeah. by any sense of it, like ethical standards. No, absolutely. I mean, take a look at what Center for American Progress did to Roger Pilkey or tried to do to him, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. ended his career. I was only, we only found out about that to, or tried to end his career. We only found out about that because of email dumps that came from WikiLeaks, that that wow. was their explicit purpose for doing that. You know, wow. um, it's because he was like, actually your stuff about how, climate increase hurts like creates natural disasters that destroy more than ever he was just like isn't like true in the way that you think it is and that's why he no longer works at 538 they got him blackballed from there as a climate denier so that's what we're up against so i think labor power and just everyday people realizing that they need and rightfully want reliability for these essential things like electricity and heating and air conditioning are really going to be our greatest asset going forward. And it's really exciting to see you making headway there in Canada, um, talking to people all over the world about this through Decouple and then going to COP, which I'll definitely want to have you back on for a COP debrief because I want to know all about what it's like to hang out with lizard people. Tell me how the salamanders are, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Oh boy. I look forward to it, Emmett. Yeah. So everybody, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Kiefer. You should check out his podcast, Decouple. Keep an eye on everything he does and stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We'll see you next time.